Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the exciting Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And I am Jonathan. And you're joining us in our 15th season, the gr- the, the Gothic Road. Is that what we're calling it? It is the Gothic Road. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going down the Gothic Road. We're in our second episode, which means we're covering the middle chunk of... Dracula. Brom Stoker's Dracula. That's what we're talking about. One. Brom, Bones, Stoker. Brom to the Bone Stoker, Dracula. Specifically chapters eight, I think, maybe nine, but through eighteen. Mm-hmm. That's where we're that's where we're targeting with our with our discussion tonight today this morning in the wee hours of the midday or the midnight whichever whichever side of the the compass or <laughs> the, the clock you fall on right we're meeting in the day so dracula can't get the drop on us right like uh van helsing tells us dracula hey he can't come come out during the day even though we see dracula doing lots of stuff in the daytime it's true van helsing suspect dude. <laughs> he is sus <laughs> yeah more more on that as we get into it uh so that's what we're talking about uh tonight today (laughs) the wee hours whichever end of the 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 clock that may be that's what we're getting into uh as far as main content but we'll go ahead and we'll fast track the the bibble babble we'll go ahead and have a little bit of the the fun stuff up front what are you guys drinking josh what do you got uh given that we're talking about a story written by an Irishman. I'm having a Guinness, a stout draft. Oh my goodness. I like that. How about you guys? What about you, John? What do you got? Uh, I've, I've got Vita, Aqua Vita, just the, the regular old water at the moment. I, I forgot to get a drink in, in my haste to get on the horn. Sparkle it up. Do it. Mm. Uh, there are no bubbles. <laughs> I like the sound. Uh, well, Reach over to the cabinet and get some Jimmy Russell if you feel like feel like I'm it. Not, I mean, it's a far reach. I'd ha- I do have the the headphone cord length to do it and still hear everything that you say, but I would need to mute myself. <laughs> You're like the uh, the punk rock guitarist that's got like the the cord that's got the the swirly like uh, phone yeah. cable kind exactly. of connector. See? You do. Holy yeah, shit. You <laughs> that's do. great. Oh man, the curly cues, dude. I think you're uh, playing playing guitar for for a power trio there or something. <laughs> I would be our bass. Uh, the Chromecast was a band. <laughs> I would be on bass. I think. You think so? Maybe drummer. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. What are the personalities people associate with these things? Uh, I would. I would say, yeah, you may be the bassist, uh, and I guess Josh would definitely be the guitarist and the the lead singer. And I, I guess, yeah, I would probably be the drummer. That's what okay. I would go with. I think that's about right. Okay. Yeah. In, in my imagination, Josh wears just a leather vest. Like, there are never sleeves on it. Like, often? when you, Whenever you picture me, that's how you visualize no, it? in this Oh, okay. Uh, it might be from now on how I picture you. I hope so. Uh, 
In that vein, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, though. I'm going to say this before I talk about what I'm drinking. I, I picked drummer just so I could be in like gym shorts and like a a, a skanky ass like white t shirt. Just. <laughs> <laughs> just, so I just sort of show, show up like Lars and uh, and play. Don't at me. I know that Metallica is not a power trio, but in my mind, that's kind of the that's the that's the framework. Uh, I'm drinking Blue Moon, the Belgian white, a Belgian style vit beer. It's a it's a wheat beer. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's made by Coors. It's a uh, it's not fancy, but you know what? I like I like wheat beers. And Blue Moons are pretty pretty dang good, you know, for a buck a can. So I've got three of those on tap. I told the guys before we started recording I didn't drink as much coffee as I wanted to before we started started up the the audio material. So uh, I hope I got enough go-go juice to, to carry us on. Uh, but maybe I'll hand off. The, the the leadership duties to, to one of the other two guys if I if I start to lose steam but blue moon that's what I'm drinking so we got some whiskey some water some beers and with that we'll move on to the one thing You guys got one thing's ready? Oh, All right, yeah. silent nods. I'm going to go over. Josh, what's your one thing? It's compelling radio when we both just look at you and nod, like look into our cameras and go, yes. Mm. Uh, my one thing is a video game for um, consoles. For uh, You can get it on Steam as well. It's a platformer, and it's called Cuphead. Have you guys heard of Cuphead? I have heard of Cuphead. I have. Have you played yeah, Cuphead? I've seen, and I've seen it for cheapsies on the on the Switch. Yeah, here lately too. So, have you played it, John? No, never played it, but I have seen it. I, I picked it up on the the Switch uh, Winter Sale, and I've been playing it uh, off and on over the last few weeks, and it's a ton of fun. The animation looks like an old school Fleischer cartoon or or like a Betty Boop kind of uh, cartoon. And um, the premise is you are you are Cuphead. You're a little Mickey Mouse looking guy with a cup for a head. And you and your pal Mugman <laughs> gambled your souls away to the devil. And now the devil is making you work for him. And you're going and you're collecting soul contracts from, from different bosses around the world. And so there are some levels, some platform levels that you got to get through. But by and large, it's a boss rush. And so when you start a level, you're, you're just fighting a boss. And they are, they're difficult. It's, it's a very, very hard game. Um, but I've beaten the first, like, six or so bosses at this point. And um, what I've learned is that if I start on, like, Sunday and I play for an hour or so, and I get the boss's kind of first couple of forms down. And then I play a little bit on Monday night. And I play a little bit on Tuesday. And I play a little bit on Wednesday. By Wednesday, I can beat that boss if I'm stuck. Um, it's just a, a matter of remembering the patterns and knowing where to jump and knowing where to shoot and, and that sort of thing. So um, there, there's a rhythm to it, very much like old school Mega Man games. Uh, so I, I really like it a lot. Uh, it's a lot of fun to play. It's frustrating in that old school Nintendo kind of way. Um, and the animation couldn't be prettier. So yeah, pick up Cuphead if it's still on sale. Next time it, next time it goes on sale, you guys pick it up. It's, it's, it's a ton of fun. 
I hear that you are like a Twitch streamer with this, that uh, there's a, a certain lady in your life that likes to watch you play Cuphead. <laughs> yeah, Ashley likes to likes to watch Cuphead. <laughs> yeah, she, it's funny. Uh, she'll be laying on the couch reading and I'll play Cuphead. And then I, I look over and she's not reading the books on her on her chest. And she's just watching me play Cuphead. And she says that that game is way too stressful for her. <laughs> so well, it sounds fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like it. Uh, it's. I think if I were to put it on a spectrum of um, of stressful games, at the other end of that spectrum would be like uh, Stardew Valley, right? Okay. And you're just you're yeah. just farming and harvesting and and asking your your girls to the prom or whatever it is. Um, right. And then there's there's Cuphead where you've got three hits and you're dead, <laughs> and you got to start all over. So yeah, it's fun. I dig it. Awesome. Uh, what about you, John? What do you got? Hmm. I was trying to figure out what I was going to pick. I think I'm going to go with, uh, I reread the Garth Ennis war stories volumes just the other day. It was like a, a wild hair that I saw him sitting on my shelf and it was like the holiday spirit or something filled me. And I was like, I want to read about people dying in war and all the weird <laughs> stuff that's in there. <laughs> And uh, I, I mowed right through them, all four in one evening. Uh, I've got two from Vertigo and two from Avatar. I know that they kind of bounced around in publication. Luke, you're a fan, right? Absolutely, yeah. Those are some of the comics that I've held on to. I have, I don't know exactly which, if it's volumes one or two of the Vertigo series, but I do have those, like Scattershot. And then the once it went over to Avatar, I have those. Uh, so I love it, man. Like those are, those are my jam. Like the, the, the NS war stories are, are where it's at, man. Can I ask which is your favorite? Like which story out of the, the volumes you enjoy the most? Oh man. Uh, what are some of the names of the, of the vertigo? Like the initial series, there's, there's Johans tiger, uh, the D day Dodgers, which might be my favorite one. Uh, I like that I, one. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, are some, what are some of the others? The Reavers. Oh, no, I, yeah. like, I like the Reavers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my jam. Uh, yeah. The Reavers one, It kind of, that is a very sword and sorcery yes. uh, issue because it's it's this melding of contemporary – it's almost ancestral history, like yeah. the way that it sort of taps into a Howardian kind of Anglican. <laughs> yeah, Howard I love like that. that he would have, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I have I – I would have to look. It's been, it's been years – since I've read those first like vertigo ones. Cause I just, I have them in singles. I didn't ever pick up the compendiums. I just have like whatever, whenever I got into comics, I was just picking them up when I saw them. Uh, so I probably have, I don't know, three or five of them. Uh, but the avatar stuff is great, man. Yeah. And this is avatar runs like those, those shorter maxi series that he were doing. They, he was doing, they were great. Oh, there's a, there's a fifth one I'll have to get. I didn't realize that. It was published after I bought all these. Anyway, uh, yeah, if you haven't checked it out before, Garth Ennis, I mean, the man can write a war story. Like, he gets he's, he, he's, he gets he's born and bred for writing writing the yeah. war stories, right? I, I, I'm sure we've talked about Ennis before. I may have even talked about these very comics on the show before, but uh, it, there's something about it. Like, he, I know he's very irreverent when he writes The Boys and The Punisher and everything. Like, he doesn't have a lot of idols that he keeps on pedestals. But he very clearly understands what people went through with war and uh, has a lot to say about it. So I, I think everybody should check those out. 
regardless of, of if you've ever read a war comic before or not. Yeah, man. Finish this out, dude. I would, I would agree. He, he does have that irreverence. I, I'll, I'll jump over to mine for just like here in a second. Like he's got that, he's got that irreverence in a lot of his other stuff, but he is a very, uh, honorary kind of dude. Like he, he recognizes the sacrifices and the true blue, uh, turmoil that like like not just even people that are active participants in war but even just the people that are that are the bystanders of war like what they've gone through he's he's honest in that front man yeah Uh, and it's it's pretty striking i I think he gets history like in a dan carlin almost kind of way yeah i i would agree man and so it's so was battlefields was that avatar too uh, or maybe. was that something? Was that dynamite? I can't remember. Oh, I think it is because the boys did dynamite. Yeah, Battlefields is dynamite. And there's so much. There's a couple things he's done more recently in the in the last like more recent years that uh, that I haven't picked up that uh that I know that are really really good war stories. Like they're things that I've bookmarked. I just I don't know. I need to read more in this. Uh. What else do you have in like as far as his stuff in your collection? That's kind of the war story oh, angle. I've got all of the war stories. I've got almost all of Battlefields. I'm missing one of those. And then I know that he's done Punisher Max, and I, that's a stretch to say Punisher is a war story. But his prequels to Punisher, where he's in Vietnam, I, I think that fits right in with his war stories and Battlefields canon. It's just about a guy like losing his mind in Vietnam and finding out he's a killer uh, and right. what that means. So uh, I think that that fits right in. And I've got all that. I've got a lot of his, his uh, Punisher run, his Fury run where he did not the, the max one where it was just swearing and stuff, but the Fury my war gone by where it's Nick Fury kind of watching Indochina boil over. Right. Right. Cool. <laughs> oh. Welcome to Inniscast. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. You can't, you can't argue Garth Ennis is he, he's a master storyteller and he's he gets the he gets the language of of funny but also serious and he can kind of kind of shift at the, the the drop of a hat I agree yeah Round the all right here. my one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna shift around I got all excited thinking about uh in his comics uh so my one thing is actually I guess I think I think this was a present from you, John, right? I'm showing it up to the to the the camera here. It's called In Search oh, yeah. of Dracula. Yeah. So so one of my my one thing for tonight is one of the extra resources that I was reading in addition to the the content that we're covering, but it's called In Search of Dracula, uh, a true history of Dracula's or <laughs> not Dracula's, <laughs> a true history of Dracula and vampire legends but it could be dracula's plural because the whole perspective of this book is dracula in in historical form and in like folkloric form and it's a paperback it originally was published so this is a this is a uh 
a Warner paperback library edition. It may have came out in some sort of funky publication before this, but basically it's the kind of thing that you would find in 1973. That's the copy that I have here that John got me maybe like in 2019. I'm not exactly for sure. That seems about right. Like maybe Christmas of 19. It was a, it was a gift from John. Uh, but this book has been reprinted a couple of different extra times over the years. You can find it dirt cheap. If you're on a books, you can find it for four or five or six bucks uh, in some form or fashion. But if you just look for the authors and the author's last names are McNally and Florescu. So McNally is, of course, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y and Florescu is F-L-O-R-E-S-C-U. Those are the two authors. This book has been reprinted in a couple different editions. It's pretty cheap. And it's one of those books that's – it really is almost like an in search of, like with Leonard Nimoy. Uh, it's not – as far as I can tell, it's not like an in search of, uh, you know, like Tenacious D reference style episode. It's it's not that. It's not a, it's not a kick-ass Leonard, Leonard Nimoy in search of, but it's kind of that. Uh, that's, the, that's the spirit of it, and it is a great extra little read. If you're into – Dracula and vampires. If you find this thing at a at a used bookstore, snag it up, especially if it's less than five bucks, because it's it's cool. It's one of those those books from the seventies or the eighties that has like the black and white art embedded into it, you know. So like Chariots of the Gods or anything that has like are aliens real or proof of ghosts explained, you know, something like that. It's plugged in there. You've got some cool classic representations of of a of a spooky thing and the book's pretty cool uh overall the the presentation is pretty solid so chapters i'm just gonna number off a a handful of the first ones here we have like introducing dracula fiction that's chapter one chapter two is brom stoker and search for dracula three is the historical dracula for his castle Dracula, wherein Dr. McNally went to uh, Transylvania and, you know, searched for actual castle Dracula, that kind of thing. Then there's uh, chapter five, which is probably my favorite chapter so far of what I've read, which is called Dracula Horror Stories of the 15th Century. So it's kind of a comparative uh, reporting of Dracula across different ethnic groups and uh, uh, countries. And that's where you get a lot of the gory details of these various pamphlets of the things that like Vlad the Impaler did, like what he, what he subjected his peoples to. It's, it's, it's not exploitation, but it's, it's close to it the way that it's reported on. Uh, But further on, there's a chapter on historical Dracula, vampirism, uh, Bram Stoker and the vampire fiction and film, which I haven't got to yet. Uh, beyond the grave and then there's like half the book not quite half the book the last third of the book are a bunch of appendices uh which include like a bibliography filmography that kind of stuff it's it's a kick-ass extra little vampire book uh and dracula book and so mcnally is uh or was he might be he might be dead at this point i'm not for sure uh but that fellow wrote a number of different books on vampires and Dracula. And so you can find a handful of his different texts 
again, for five or six bucks, but I think they're good little accents. If you're into the topic that we're talking about tonight or today or whatever point in time it is that you're listening, check out, check out something by, uh, by Raymond T. McNally and it'll be good. It does sound like a kick-ass in search of. <laughs> sorry, sorry that I rambled, but I I really am jazzed about this. It's it's a fun story. Uh, the way that he's got it put together, it really is. It is a, a kick-ass in search of. Like he's he. It's it's in that style for sure. I was thinking beyond belief, fact or fiction. Wasn't that another one like that? With Jonathan Frakes as the host. Mm-hmm. Similar, yeah. And another Star Trek dude. <laughs> who was who that? He's uh, Riker. Frakes? Riker, right? In He's Star Riker Trek. Riker from The Next Generation. The Next Generation. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yep. So you go from Star Trek to hosting uh, mystery shows. It's a, it's a good pipeline, dude. Mm-hmm. That, would be a fun, that would be a fun life, I have to think. I would think so. I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully it was a good life for the guy. Hopefully, he's <laughs> hopefully it's fun. But that sounds like a cool a cool path. I don't know. I, I've never actually looked into like Nimoy's story either, but I have to think that his overall Hollywood story uh, would be would be cool, right? Like that that kind of path too. He wrote two books, and one is called "I Am Spock," and the other <laughs> is called "I Am Not Spock." Um. And they they both sort of showcase his different like his Star Trek years and then his like post Star Trek getting away from from science fiction for a bit, um, recording a, a really strange album, you know, doing the uh, uh, in search of series. That's awesome, man. I <laughs> I gotta wonder when he did the the, the Hobbit, right? Like yeah. the 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 narration of that like where does that fit into the to the whole story too i, I don't know yeah it was a strange right, strange we're path gonna a, we're gonna do a nimoy season nimoy <laughs> appreciation cast in search of <laughs> in search of <laughs> all right well sorry for the meanders uh put them all together they're a uh one thing are we ready to get into it let's get into it Okay, so we're going to get into our story here. We're going to get into to Dracula. We're going to jump in, I guess, around chapter 8 or 9. And basically, where we last left off, we had uh, the vampire, Count Dracula, from Transylvania, having arrived to uh the british isles and he was hopping off a boat and we had the burial of a seaman uh we had uh mina who was excited about john's return we had lucy interacting with uh one bow that she was to be betrothed to, but there were a handful of other dudes that were in the satellites of, of Lucy's orbit. And how do we want to pick this up? Do we want to start talking about 
cool things that happen. Basically, we're going to move into the story of Lucy's demise on a couple fronts. So death, the first and death, the second. And then we're going to end at the, the end game of the novel, sort of where, where things are going to go to try to do away with count Dracula. Do we want to work through it sort of narrative style? Do we want to talk through fun things that we liked? Do we want to talk about specific characters? What do you guys want to do? I think it's probably good to give just a general overview of what happens in these chapters that we're going to cover. Uh, just sort of broad strokes about wh- where we go with the adventure. Because it, this book does seem to have not necessarily set pieces, but it has it does have that three-act structure, I would say. And we're in the second act. So what, what transpires that's most important in this one? I think the the things to me that, that happen in chapters nine through 18 that are, are of um, importance are the demise of Lucy, Lucy coming under the powers of darkness and the entrance of Van Helsing and his attempts to, to rescue her. I think the next thing that happens that is, is noteworthy is Lucy's transformation into Nosferatu. And then um, the party, uh, that is, uh, Harker, Lucy, or sorry, Mina, Harker, um, and the rest sort of collating all of the information from the various missives and diaries and, um, phonograms into a coherent story so that they're putting together the, the picture of what happened. Um, yeah. And they, they all kind of accept that they're dealing with a vampire, right? Like in that in that final bit that you're hitting on, Josh, that's kind of the recognition. Like everybody's embracing the fact that they're dealing with this this unnatural, this supernatural force, and they're unified and like saying, "Hey, we're going to stand against it," right? Right. We're so, going to kill it. <laughs> going to kill it. <laughs> going to kill it. Um, going to get him. The um. Attack on Lucy. It's 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 less of an attack and more of a siege that is that happens by Dracula onto Lucy. And the the first sort of shots fired are when uh, I think in chapter seven or eight when when Lucy goes on her uh, midnight stroll up the uh, the headland, right? And we talked about that last time. But the fallout of that is that. Uh, Dracula has kind of gained inroads into Lucy's mind, into her psyche, into her soul. Um, and over time, she seems to be succumbing to some sort of a disease. There, she has a pallor. She's weakened. She's not herself. Even though she tries to put on a strong face, it's it's clear that she's struggling to to even stay awake during the day. She's not sleeping well. She's restless. Um, what do you guys think about th- this initial salvo by Dracula onto Lucy? We put the blood in. The blood goes away. Where does it go? It's, there's like a big like they, they pump her up like a tick with what four different individuals blood or uh, yeah four right mm-hmm. all three of the dudes and dr van helsing 
donate blood to her. I mean, I have to imagine that Dracula is like, where does this keep coming from? And why does it taste so different each time I visit this girl? <laughs> uh, but uh, they're very confused by what's happening. This wasting disease that's taking over her. We start to get the first drabs and dribbles of maybe what's going on. I think it's Quincy that brings up that there was one time he was down in South America and uh, on, on the, happened to cut on the pampas on the pampas. And I just happened to come across some of them. their vampire bats. They got down there. Uh, that's when we start to get, you know, Oh, Ooh, what, what could this be that's happening here? Uh, you know, as modern, I was, I've been intrigued. I, this takes us a little afield of what you asked, I guess, Josh, but I've been intrigued by reading people's reactions to Dracula in like 2020 and 2021. Okay. I looked up Dracula on Reddit and there were multiple posts in the R books subreddit that were about how, uh, how droll and how uh, uninspired Dracula is and how it's just like a normal vampire story. And then those people getting dogpiled on it being like, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's because it's where all of the rest of them came. Like, it, it just cracks me up, I guess, to read those kinds of things. But are, are they saying are they saying that Dracula is too derivative of Dracula? It, yeah, basically <laughs> that like it's it's too much of a normal vampire story. Uh, so I've been repeatedly trying to put myself in the mind of, you know, forgetting everything I know about vampires. Like if I was reading this story and I didn't know that girl's getting bit by a vampire, uh, what would that, that clue have meant to me of hearing about the vampire bat, uh, just in the fact that the blood keeps disappearing. Like, this is weird. What's happening? Uh, where are we going with this? I, I, I think it's more interesting that way, I guess, <laughs> than pretend or not pretending and, and treating Dracula like it's not the first of these stories. Anyway, uh, that that was to me what, they, like, they're pumping her full of blood. They don't know what's happening. Uh, she just keeps getting worse and worse. They She recovers at one point because they also uh, stuff her with garlic and uh, cover her up, and they almost save her, but there's a, a mishap with the telegram. There's a series of, of yeah. unfortunate events Right. Yeah. That begins begins with the the misplaced telegram. Um, and the telegram is supposed to go to Seward and it's sent by Van Helsing and he sends it to Carfax. But unfortunately, it gets sent to another Carfax somewhere else. Right. And it's delayed by two days or something like that. He forgets uh, the area code or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't put the, the correct uh, the correct zip code. Which which Carfax does he mean? <laughs> Let's guess. So yeah, that slows things down. But there there's a number of strange coincidences, and at first glance, it seems as though there might be the influence of Count Dracula sort of acting both behind the scenes and on our main characters directly. And I wanted to ask you guys, did you, did you think that this was a goof up by Van Helsing or did you think that Dracula had some sort of a part in sending that telegram somewhere else? I guess reading it now, I've, I've never had a, an issue in the past few years of seeing it as a, as a plot contrivance, like that this is Stoker's way of killing Lucy. Mm hmm. And when I was younger and when I was reading it for the first couple times, I never had an issue where I saw it as just 
honest mistakes. So I never, I never saw it as a, uh, as a, uh, an effort of Dracula as only like honest mistakes that were truly forgivable, uh, of, of Van Helsing. Okay. What about you, John? Did, did you get the sense that Dracula is sort of acting behind the scenes on our party? Or did you think that this is just an absent-minded professor being an absent-minded professor? I guess I didn't take it as either of those necessarily. I mean, it is a foreigner, a stranger in a strange land, like using technology and he's an old man, you know, okay, boomer kind of jokes could fly around. But uh, I think what struck me as more horrifying is that it's just what happens. Like, it's just the failure of modern technology, basically, to help them intercept this ancient evil. And it just is, it's a mundane thing happening in a magical story. I think that's a cool, horrific element that kind of carries on with things we were talking about last episode, where this story sort of juxtaposes a new science fictional world with uh, an ancient, older horror and that horror still having like weight. Does that make sense? Like, like, like the fact that through the happenstance of telegrams and all of our next generation technology, we're still dealing with this, this monster. I think that's a a school, uh, like it's, it's a way to, to make a point that the scary history of vampires is going to have some sort of, sort of impact. I don't know if that comes across, but, but, but it seems like it's a way to like hammer home that horror and superstition of the old world is the thing that like, that's what the story is about. Mm -hmm. I, I guess in my reading, I, in there's, there's nothing to make me think this other than there are other more clear cut examples of Dracula sort of influencing characters to make his ends, uh, to meet his own ends. And I took the, the missing telegram, the, the, um, that's not missing. It, it, uh, was misplaced temporarily, uh, as an example of Dracula meddling in the affairs of the people that are trying to save his victim. Um, so you did see it as a, an actual supernatural act. I, I, yeah, I, it might not even be necessarily supernatural. It, it could be, I mean, we have examples of Dracula sort of, uh, um, using, uh, telepathy to control other people like, uh, me and his mother. Right. And, and so he definitely on screen uses Mina's mother as a foil to Van Helsing's plan, particular, in particular, uh, you know, pulling the the wreath of um, garlic from around Lucy's neck before she dies, <laughs> right before before the mother dies of a shock because there's a wolf that mm-hmm. barges through the door, um, <laughs> right. and and so I I took it to to sort of as sort of an example of Dracula manipulating things, and we know from from the first third of the book that Dracula has been studying. England. He's been studying the modern world. Who's to say that he, in, uh, in amongst those books of uh, laws and legal procedures and um, who's who in London, 
there's not some some book about telegrams and how they work. You know? Oh, I think I I don't think that's a bad read on it at all. Absolutely, because I mean, this is a guy that's living with the cheat code on, right? I mean, he can do anything and he can influence everything. And I think what you're saying can even add into what I was saying about a mundane horror is like he just knows how to. It doesn't even need to be supernatural. Like he can just mess things up because he knows their system better than they do even. And he can just like knock all their pieces off the game board without even having to use his powers. Like he could just simply snip the telegraph line or something because he knows how it works. To me, it's just so convenient because there are other telegrams, right? They go through, but this one's the only time sensitive one. And it's late. And, and it's late by a day. I just looked, I thought it was a couple days, but it's late by a day and it gives Dracula this window of opportunity. Jerk vampires. <laughs> These Galdern vampires. What else? I, I, uh, I feel like I commandeered the, the conversation. So what, what do you guys <laughs> think about this, uh, this, this part of the book where Lucy is succumbing to Dracula? It's scary. I mean, it's it's really it's tragic to watch this person wither away in front of like a whole passel of people that love her. Uh, I I am struck. I was struck repeatedly in this part of the story about it's like how much everybody loves each other and is very open about it. It seems very non-Victorian to me that they're all just like, "My God, I love you!" Like you're you're just <laughs> like, "Oh my gosh!" Slapping shoulders, giving hugs letting fly with the smooches. Like there's just a lot of, of love in the air with these people. And it makes it hurt all the more that they're watching this, this woman that they all love wither away in front of them and not be able to really do anything about it. And the tipping and the tapping at the window, the bat hitting at it. Like you, you use the word siege. And I love that. It is this almost silent magical siege that takes days. And there's bits and pieces of hope in the form of garlic and all these other uh, like playbook interceptions that they have trying to stop Dracula. And it, it just makes it all the more tragic when Van Helsing's plans all come to, to not, and they have to bury Lucy. Uh, she dies. They take her to the graveyard, but then even stranger things begin to happen. We've got the, the blue for lady who comes out at night and starts uh, attacking children. And I thought this was a weird turn. Uh, you guys have talked about, you think the, the vampire is a, a sexual creature uh, and everything. What is, what would be what is represented here then? Like, is this the loss of innocence for children, or like a perversion of motherhood? I mean, she starts preying on kids because she's just a a wee little vampire at this point. That's that's how I take it. Is she stretching her legs? What what about you, Luke? Yeah, no, I think the perversion of motherhood is definitely part of it. Uh. I think that's I think that's pretty spot on with the way that she's presented uh, by the children in, in the newspapers. And then once we see her through the eyes of our vampire slayers, she's even more uh, voluptuous and the, the 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 overall color to her pallor and all of that kind of stuff like she's more alive as dead than she was alive if that makes sense like that's the way that she's presented and so it's this very crass uh inversion of life and death uh and and i think it's a i think definitely that's a read on sort of like 
Lucy's sexual awakening and death and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think it ultimately all gets back to some some Victorian concept of perversion, right? Like she's preying on children when she should be maternal and she's, uh, you know, come into some like virile presence, but yet she's dead. All of those things are like, like ultimate feminine vampire. I think it's super upsetting along the same lines, super upsetting that, after she dies and every time they see her after some time passes after she dies, she becomes more and more and more beautiful and more desirable. And even the undertakers are commenting on it. It's, it's a little upsetting, right? She's going to make them creepy. look real good. Like, yeah, <laughs> people will be real impressed with their undertaker skills. <laughs> right. Um, but it's not their undertaking necessarily. It's, it's, uh, she's becoming something else. So you mentioned the the blue for lady. Um, one thing that struck me when when our our heroes see Lucy and finally understand like what Van Helsing is has known or suspected for for a while. Um, the the thing they notice is her eyes. They're they're soulless. They're predatory, right? And I I just. You know, imagine seeing someone whom you loved, who you knew to be a very sweet, caring, genuine person die. And then now they're standing in front of you and they are a monster. They're dead. They just died. But now they're standing there. They've, they've got blood all over the front of them and they've, they've ripped open uh, a little kid's like throat <laughs> or something like they, they've, they've been chewing on this, this, this baby essentially. Well, uh, she throws the kid down, right? Like, yeah. Just like a predatory animal would drop what it's been snacking on. Uh, and I think that is what strikes a lot of them is just this like callous nature that's taken her over. After reading this, I looked up the clip of the, the interpretation of this in your Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought that captured it very well. Uh, this, this whole process where she becomes the monster. Yeah, I love that. We talked off mic about the how horrible it would be for Arthur to have to put his newly deceased fiance uh, out of her misery using the the stake and the hammer through her heart, and then to to cut off her head and you know stuff her mouth full of garlic or whatever it is you know that Van Helsing ultimately does this this sort of uh, I don't know it's a desecration of a body, but it's it's also a consecration of the vampire. What do you guys think about the, the way in which we have to deal with vampires in the story? I mean, it, this is messed up. Like he whips out what sounds to be a three foot tall. It's like a, a, a yardstick of wood that is sharpened and burned on one end so that it's hard and everything. And he hands it to Arthur and is like, okie dokie. Now you got to pound this through your, your lady love. And she's, suppressed into the coffin by his magics right i mean like he's got is it a rose on he's done something so she can't get out of the coffin right or Mm -hmm. is it daytime no it's he's done something he sealed her in there yeah yeah so so now arthur has like a prone person that he is supposed to just tint stake through the heart and it was i thought it was very wrenching just like absolutely heart-wrenching to read the description of him beating this this stake into her 
And, but then to have it, I think that Van Helsing describes it as going through the bitter water to get to the sweet water where he realizes that he saved her eternal soul uh, on the other side of this pain that like he had to suffer for her ultimate salvation, which I mean, there's lots of, of nuances and angles that you could talk about with that, but um, it just was, it was <laughs> gut wrenching. I, I can't imagine having to do that to somebody and like what kind of, of upper body strength that would take to beat that through <laughs> somebody's chest like that. And then, I, I mean, I thought it was a very good description without being visceral of describing, you know, viscera and blood spraying everywhere. Uh, I thought Stoker captured the physicality of the act very well uh, in terms of just how he wrote it out. Yeah, I would, I would yeah, agree. It's, 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 it's striking that it's uh, that uh, – they're all sort of taking part in in that act, but ultimately it is the 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 bow that that she selected for marriage that's that's driving the the stick home. And he believes I don't remember if he states this before that scene or afterward, but he believes that he's the only one to have given her blood, right? Right. And he he says that that is you know symbolic that they. They've they have become of one blood, so they're they're not engaged really in his mind. They're married, like she's his his deceased bride. And I think later maybe somebody lets the cat out of the bag that well actually Ben Ben Helsing <laughs> does in this moment. Like, yeah, like, actually I he doesn't rat them all out, but he does say you know I also poured my blood into this woman. I understand how hard this is, but you have to do it, or she's gonna rot on a fire in hell for forever. Yeah. So I, I don't know. There's, there's layers and layers of, of meaning and nuance and symbolism in, in this scene, I think. Well, what are some of the other symbols? I mean, you were, you were arguing for a very different one when we were off mic. So let's bring it to the mic. I don't think that it's necessarily different. It just kind of takes these ideas to their conclusion. And that is that this is uh, a symbol of the consummation of the relationship between um, Holmwood and Lucy in, in as much as he is using uh, a stake to penetrate her heart. And by doing such, um, he is sort of bringing her, uh, well, he's saving her soul, right? Like he's, um, bringing her into, uh, a more godly existence, away from that more sinful existence that she uh, just a few seconds ago was, was living. Yeah. So I guess building on that, and these are all well-worn tropes and, and conversations about, about vampires and, and Dracula specifically, but you know, so Lucy's been afflicted, right? Like we started our conversation of the episode here, probably 20 minutes ago with uh her having a sickness and she's had the blood of multiple men she's had the fluid of multiple men pumped through her over uh the the entirety of her of her malady right mm -hmm. uh and she's she's been living she's been living in sin right so we're we're layering on sexual uh, 
and medical kind of layers to the to the story here. But I think that all of these things get sort of wrapped up that, you know, whether or not you want to interpret Dracula as some sort of uh, story relating to fear of disease, the story outright frames itself with vampirism as a disease and Lucy is afflicted with it. It's something that she's been treated with. And so you've got this whole concept of uh, fluid exchange that's happening over and over and over and over and over and over again across a few different chapters uh, with Lucy exchanging fluids with a bunch of different men. And there's this really awkward instance where uh, Van Helsing even talks about <laughs> talks about it. It's, that to me is a jarring sort of sort of statement where he where he hints at that. But ultimately, Lucy is uh, dirty and is damned, and then you get this this uh, situation where she's killed a second time, where she's born again. She's ultimately sort of like uh, killed in a in a proper fashion and she's subjugated like all of it gets kind of wrapped up there's a there's a bit of morality there's a bit of body horror there's a bit of uh disease that's all kind of wrapped up within this this story of vampirism and we're we're not you know from uh england during the the 1880s and 1890s but if we were, we might be able to see even more layers of, of meaning in these scenes. But I, from, from what little I know about that era of, of regional history, man, these, these types of topics were spoken about in very hushed and um, sort of roundabout ways. You know, uh, and and words have more than one more than one meaning, and scenes have more than one meaning, and and I can't help but think that there's more to this than just uh, you know uh, slaying a monster. There's there's a lot going on here. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. It, it, the fact that it's you've got this ensemble cast of suitors, like men that Lucy's been in love with to varying degrees and they're rescuing her. But at the same time, it's kind of pushing her, pushing her towards being this damn thing that she is. It's like, uh, it's an extreme. We talked about this last episode with, you know, the, the bros in the story, the, the, the team of dudes, being ultimately archetypes that they're, they're, they're good in a lot of ways. They're, they're a bit, uh, toxic in a lot of other ways, but they, they have, they seem to have good hearts despite that toxicity. The, the way that we get this presentation of what, like, uh, what's the right word? Like the, the maiden and the whore, like what's the what's the other way to refer to that? But like that kind of that kind of 
uh, binary of depiction of, of women in the story. It's absolutely, I think on display with Lucy, like she's, she's flipping the switch between those two, uh, characterizations, mm-hmm. those, those two modes. And we know, I mean, Van Helsing's knowledge, albeit, you know, and, and I think Luke, you'll get into this in a, in a bit, but Van Helsing might not necessarily be the most reliable narrator and the most reliable, uh, uh, vampire hunter, but he tells us, Hey, vampires can't enter a home. They can't come in unless you invite them in. Right. You've got to be open to it. Um, and we know that he comes into Lucy's bedroom multiple times. Right. So, so there's not just these four men that have had some sort of, um, some sort of, uh, close, um, intimate association with Lucy, but there's a fifth, there's Dracula who has routinely, uh, multiple times attacked Lucy, taken her fluids, drained her and left in the night. Yeah, and it's even commented on, like in the Klinger edition, about how uh, improper it would be for Seward and Van Helsing to, you know, attend to Lucy uh, in her afflicted state. You know, she's suffering, but she's a woman, and they're trying to, you know, tend to her. Like, that's, that's, there's, there's flags that go up on that front. And, all of this, I'm just sort of circling back around to like some of the points that, that John was making a little bit earlier, you know, you're reading on Reddit and you see that vampire is so pre- the, the, the vampire story and, and Dracula is so predictable and it's, it's playing to a type. This is the first time that you get vampirism presented like as a, as a malady. Like you're seeing these types of sexual connotations in the script. Like there's there's sex and vampires before Stoker. There's like Lefanu's like Carmilla and some of the things that inspired him. But you're truly seeing some of that Victorian sex stuff and the disease angle playing out for the first time. You you have to be able to recognize that the people reading this the first time around were, were totally ignorant of, of what was going on on the page. Mm-hmm. And I think it holds up. I mean, I, you know, yes, vampires have been done a lot, but this is still, I think an effective, especially the, the section that is from uh, Lucy's perspective where, her mother comes in and and rips the um, the garlic from her and then and then kind of noiselessly tries to scream and it comes out as a gurgle because there's a wolf at the door and it comes crashing through and her mother dies and then these specks enter the room and and it's it's Dracula and he there's there's a there's a point where um, a door opens and then closes like he's in there he's invisible right like he's in the house and then all the servants have laudanum in their in their wine and they're put to to sleep they're knocked out um i i just i love that 
chapter because it is such a haunted house fun ride. Um, and I think it's still pretty spooky and it, it holds up really well. Yeah, I would agree. And, uh, and it's complicated, right? So like Lucy's mom is about to croak, mm-hmm. not to, not to be too crass, but that's something that's kind of lingering in all of the various missives that are going back and forth as Lucy is suffering from her own disease. Her mom is on death's door mm-hmm. and, uh, Lord Godalming his is about to, is about to croak or does croak. Like there's this omnipresence. This is like the, the extra level of, you know, the, the interpretations that people throw onto the story that, you know, the disease is death. And we have these oldie McMoldies, these boomers, these folks that are the seniors that are that are on their on their way out and then we have the next generation that are affected and uh and they're dying and <laughs> you know and they're making a lot of dumb choices uh with with what they do and kind of damning their kids uh the whole way around like I think I think that stuff is intentional too I think that Stoker is trying to comment on uh, generational anxiety of death too with the story. Yeah, and not not just that anxiety from the perspective of the elderly. We get that from the the old sea captain, right? The old uh, the old sailor. Um, yeah, yeah. But for from for from Lucy's perspective and and from uh, Arthur's perspective. Um, it's how are these losses, like, when are they going to happen? It's a long drawn out process. It could take months and it separates Lucy and Arthur just as they are engaged. And again, I can't help but wonder is Dracula attacking Arthur's father or playing some part in his demise such that it takes him away and and he has a more open sort of inroad with Lucy, you know that this is beyond the text. But I mean, Dracula is manipulating all sides, and he's he's the master planner here. Like, I, I just can't help but think he's got his his fingers in in all the pies. But I think that what's cool about that and that sort of thinking with a character like this is that it feeds into what happens with the vampire kind of writ large, which is, I mean, he is also a foreigner coming in and taking their things and stealing their women. And uh, I think that people in the, like if you were in Britain at this time, you would be a part of whatever, like Dracula anon or whatever uh, talking about how he was actually behind all of these different things. Like he would become this, this omnipresent specter that every bad thing that happens, you could trace back to him basically. And I think that, I, don't, I doubt that was on purpose on Stoker's part, but like the fact that it's it's even plausible that you could be like, oh yeah, like maybe he did do this to it, her heart, or maybe he did kill Lord Plum Golding. Um, Plum like, <laughs> Goldalming, yeah. Sorry, sure. Uh, like all of these different things that are occurring, why couldn't Dracula have done them? I mean, he seems like he can do anything. It's pretty convenient, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, it's just the timing of it all, but... Uh, you know, it it also kind of 
works just as well as as a uh, you know an opportunity for him to strike rather than an opportunity that he's created. So are we talking about favorite things from this section? No? I, think, I think we should. I think that yeah, we talked yeah, about for sure. One of mine is the is the staking scene. Uh, I thought that was very well written. The other thing that's like a through line to this piece that I find I want to know what the the culmination is going to be is Renfield. Uh, I didn't know that he was going to be that compelling of a character, but his like eating flies and spiders thing, transforming into homicidal tendencies, transforming into gentleman lunatic that's trying to talk his way out of the insane asylum at the end of the the part that I read, at least uh, he seems to have come out of a fog or something. And I don't, I want to know if he's going to go back into the fog. I just want to see what happens with Renfield. Like he, he has become much more compelling than I anticipated. I'm very used to the, the witch is familiar. The, the vampire is familiar, just being a lackey, like doing lackey things all the time. And he seems to have more of a story to him than I had anticipated. Are you a Renfield fan, Luke? Yeah, man. I, I love the way that that character develops over the course of the story. And it is a weird presentation of him. Like once he eats all of his flies and everything and he becomes, <laughs> you know, not dapper, Lord of the but, flies. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's just it, the interaction between him and like Seward and the folks at the, uh, the institution where he's at, it's, it's really kind of, I keep using this term. It's spooky the whole way through, like the way that he's presented is unsettling. Like he is an absolute precursor to a, a, a Dahmer, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter, like serial killer kind of, kind of dude like that's 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 the archetype that's being tapped like right here at the turn of the the 20th century i i love this presentation of him and the um the best part is this scene where where mina goes to talk to him with dr seward and um he mentions that well, he mentions Lucy's death in a roundabout way, kind of casually tosses it out there that it, it was someone who you were in love with Dr. Seward and Seward's like, how did you know that? And Renfield is, is kind of gives him this, this uh, side glance and is like, well, you know, we, we, uh, we inmates of your, um, of your asylum, we, we love you and we pay attention to you. But is that it? Or does he have some sort of a connection with Dracula that, that gives him some knowledge of the outside of, of uh, the insane asylum? And isn't it just so convenient that Renfield is in an insane asylum next to Dracula's new house? It, yeah, that is Again, awfully, awfully convenient. The conspiracies add up. <laughs> um, and he's, he says something pretty spooky I think it's at the end of this chapter uh, where he he's he's talking to Seward and he's like, you know, I think you should let me go. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> right. I, I, I admitted myself and I should have the right yeah. to say when I should go. 
And if you don't let me go, you're, you are going to regret it. You're going to be sorry. And that is super, super spooky. Yeah. The fact that he's in there of his own volition and, and drops that kind of, kind of judgment is, 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 uh, is spooky. What about you, Luke? Let, let's, let's hear some, some of the, the choice, uh, bits of the story from your perspective in chapters nine through 18. Uh, well, I like, I like Lucy's death the second time around. The first time is, is, is a bit hard. Uh, it's always infuriating the first time that Lucy dies to see all of Seward's and Van Helsing's best efforts thwarted. Uh, like as if the, the tides are just turned against them. I hate to see the garlic being cast off and all of these, these ignorant efforts that kind of, kind of waylay and damn her. It's, it's almost as if it's fixed and that her fate is sealed. Hint, hint, hint. Like, (laughs) I find that, I find that very infuriating. Like that, that plot, plot structure really works on me. Uh, but then ultimately when she's killed the second time around, like that's another high water mark for me, you know, much as if like much as when the, the, the wives of Dracula and the sort of the first third of the story are, are dealing with Jonathan and they're kind of tempting him. And there's that exchange that, that is the high water, like horror mark for me kind of here in the middle of the story. When, when Lucy's ultimately dealt with. Uh, yeah, I, I think those are the kind of the two, the two, the two points, like the, the death of Lucy the first time and the death of Lucy the second time. Mm-hmm. Hey, imagine a Victorian era blood transfusion. Like <laughs> I, I get the sense that, that Van Helsing is like cutting or wounding whoever it is that's, that's donating the blood and is shoving some sort of a rod, some sort of a syringe up in there. And it's pretty darn big. And, and as, is then like, he's taking way more blood than he should be. (laughs) Right. Like he's, he's essentially, he's draining (laughs) all of these, all of these guys, uh, to, in order to save, uh, Lucy's life. Um, and then prescribing them brandy. Yeah. Brandy. And brandy around her gums. Make sure she gets the narcotic. Um, I I just was horrified. Like as somebody who gets a, a squeamish when he has to go get blood drawn, the, these scenes of blood transfusions and thinking about how they must have been, and in the uh, new annotated Dracula with with Klinger, there's a there's a diagram of like a gravity transfusion uh, where some dude is like standing up above the, the person receiving blood. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just so horrifying to me, this, this whole notion and the juxtaposition of science and this, um, you know, progressing field of um, what's, what's the study of, of blood. Hematology. Yeah, Phlebo- like a phlebotomy. Yeah, phlebo- like the phlebotomy, phlebotomy methodologies, um, and just juxtaposing those with you know let's let's just fill this room with garlic <laughs> is just so neat. 
it's it's this this uh science versus folklore thing and and it the those two things collide in these chapters but imagine being an early pioneer or a doctor of blood transfusion like what sounds more magical than blood magic than being like oh we'll take your juices and we'll put them in that person and then you'll get better like to me that's that reeks of like oh (laughs) you're crazy like you can't just give other people your blood i mean that's mine i i need that yeah what would conan do i mean he would (laughs) if someone suggested that to him he would cleave them right you're a you're a wizard Blood wizards. But again, it's it's the moment of, of now versus then. Like that is a very magical kind of thing to read in nineteen hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the exchange of blood. Like it's it is something that we do take for granted as working today, and we also acknowledge the craziness of how risky everything that is described on the page is, you know, with blood types and, and Reese's types and all that kind of good stuff. But it's it's magical, like it, it kind of transcends uh, the science and becomes mystical the way that it's presented. Right. Uh, it's 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 really pretty cool the way that it's the way that it's presented here. And uh, you sent a picture, John, of kind of kind of what it looks like. <laughs> it's gruesome. It was dramatic. Right. Mm hmm. Maybe we can include some of those in the show notes or something, but uh, I found a few of these looking it up. Like here's one where it looks like they're showing how you would tie your arm off and then the like sewing needle sized thing that they would be shoving into your elbow joint. (laughs) And there's like a a bag of some sort that they're using to suck the blood or to like get it started. Like you do when you you suck on a hose to get the gas (laughs) when you're trying to steal it from somebody's tank. Man, yeah, it's 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 grisly stuff. Um, so we're talking about the blood transfusion and stuff. I mean, let's talk about Van Helsing then, because okay. I know Van Helsing as you know Hugh Jackman. <laughs> that, that was the Van Helsing I was first exposed to as a youth, and he is not a cool action hero. He sounds like Ludwig von Drake in this book. Uh, he is a crazy doctor that comes across the channel and shows up, and seems to me like he half knows about a lot of things and he's the leader of this motley crew of, of vampire hunters essentially. And they're relying on him and he really doesn't seem to have the whole picture. Uh, it's interesting to me that, what were you going to say? Go, no, go ahead. It's, it's just interesting to me. Like you usually have somebody that shows up and is like, okay, you know, here's all of the lore about vampires. And we get some of that. We get him regurgitating, some of what Stoker has obviously dug up in his folklore research. But he's also, it feels to me like a character that's plumbing the darkness. Like he really is kind of going through this with everybody else where he's learning as much as he is teaching. And I, I think Luke has, I don't know if you have feelings about Van Helsing or if you have conspiracy theories about Van Helsing. Uh, I, I really like Van Helsing. I think he's an endearing character and he's fallible i think that comes across like the way that he's personified he's uh he's a man and he has a bit of hubris about him and the way that it's sort of presented he 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 does know a lot but he also presumes a lot and he kind of like 
unloads a lot of like vampire lore on the other vampire hunters. If we're going to start calling the team that at this point in time, uh, he, he's got a lot of baggage and we don't know a lot about Van Helsing, but one of the things that we were talking about, you know, leading up to the recording tonight, and I don't think we hinted at this in the last episode, but like that, the, so the clinger edition of the new annotated Dracula, the way that the way that Klinger sort of interprets the the text is as a as a historical record. So he did this, I think, with the with his edition on Sherlock Holmes as well. Uh, but but basically taking the text at face value as like a historical record, that's kind of how Klinger worked with it, and. S- it's 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 a very novel enterprise and it adds this extra layer of like meta textual meta fictional elements to it. So by the time you get to the middle of the story uh reading the the, the Dracula novel with these annotations that Klinger lays on you begin to see uh between the threads of the the, the medical experiences of Van Helsing and also of Seward. And it's, it's really interesting. Like Van Helsing is in a lot of ways, <laughs> you know, to fictionally to, to, to Stoker's credit, the way he's writing this character, Van Helsing is a mystic and a doctor at the same time. And he kind of shows up. He's a little bit Gandalf. He like, he disappears and then he comes back when he needs to. And that's, that's kind of the way that that character is presented. But if you're to interpret that truly, like in a historical sense, it's a little, it's a little like, what, what did you say, Josh? Like, what's the word? Is it sus? Like, it's a little suspect. Yeah. Uh, like, like <laughs> the way that, uh, that Van Helsing operates sometimes, it's suspect. He goes to Amsterdam, bops back over, he F's up on a telegram cost somebody their life man whatever i screwed up and maybe i know some things about like mountain ash and uh wolfsbane and garlic you know he is painting an imperfect picture for the other vampire hunters and so van helsing is a is a super cool dude but if you just read this as a strictly uh, historical text, the way that Klinger sort of plays with it, it's funny, and you get to you start asking questions about the record. So I, I, I think that maybe gets at what you were hitting at, John. Like I, I love the way that Van Helsing actually is portrayed by Stoker, and I think that he's a cool melding of a man of science, man of faith kind of mentality. But I also like the metatextual way that you can kind of think about. Uh, Van Helsing is a is a fallible science man who's who's not as good as he thinks he is. Yeah, he's not presented in that way in any of the the film adaptations of this that I've seen. No, he's strictly he's a he's a very sciencey dude in the Coppola version, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's weird because he knows about vampires and he knows about their weaknesses. So he's familiar, 
he's not a believer until he sees the evidence. But, you know, much much like in the novel here, he he has this hypothesis that they're dealing with a vampire and he never tells anyone. <laughs> he just uh, abuses them psychologically and tortures them, <laughs> um, which which is pretty terrible. So, yeah, Van Helsing is great. He's a great character, but he's also um, he's kind of a jerk. His bedside manner could use some some polishing. Yeah, what's the name of the uh, of the the kung fu master uh, in Kill Bill that trains? Uh, oh, <laughs> that trains the bride. Like, yeah, like, I know who you're like, talking uh, with the big beard. <laughs> he's he's bad. Like he's he's not he's not a he's not a nice guy. Van Hel- Van Helsing. Well, I think to the to the credit of uh, Anthony Hopkins and to Francis Ford Coppola, the way he's presented in, in that sort of version of the story, he's, he's kind of a schmarmy D bag in a lot of ways too. Mm -hmm. I think that that nails the Van Helsing in a lot of ways with how Stoker presents him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 She was in a lot of pain and then I cut off her head, filled a mouthful of garlic and drove a stick through her heart. It's very matter of fact, the same way that he sort of talks about her, like in the actual like Stoker text, like Stoker kind of uses the words about like how she's filled with the blood of, you know, multiple, multiple men. And it's all of this weird sort of sexual stuff. And he's kind of he's demeaning like the way that he he refers to to Lucy. It it is it's of a type like that. I think that that scene that you're referencing, Josh, like channels that, that text that Stoker Stoker has big Van Helsing energy. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of an asshole kind of energy. It is. <laughs> like yeah. he's, he's, he's kind of a, he's kind of a butthead. Uh, but it's still compelling. I don't know if we're going to say endearing. I think there's, I think the other vampire slayers are a bit more endearing, but Van Helsing is at least a good motivator for like, we got a job to do. We're going to get it done, you know? So maybe we can move towards the, uh, the, the final, the final acts Mm -hmm. of, uh, the middle part of the story here. So, so we're moving towards the death of Lucy and, and the fellows, and Mina are getting together and coming along towards a, a central goal. Mm-hmm. They, they basically are going to bring down Dracula, right? That's right. And so Harker is, is using his skills as a, uh, a, a clerk to track down where those boxes that he saw being shipped away from castle Dracula, uh, have been, have been sent. And they know that, Probably they're at Carfax because Harker knows that that's one of the properties Dracula purchased. Um, they also at this point get a, uh, a sort of a Ted talk about what vampires are and their powers and weaknesses from Van Helsing. Was there anything in that list of weaknesses or, or things that vampires can do that surprised you guys or, or, 
didn't really fit with your conception of vampires from the the popular sort of consciousness? Anything you can think of? I, I have a list here. He says uh, um, vampires have certain weaknesses. They can't survive without blood. They can't enter a house unless they're summoned. Uh, Van Helsing says they lose their power at daybreak. Uh, they must seek shelter in the earth or a coffin. Powerless before crucifixes, communion wafers, other holy objects. Um, they, they've got to rest in their native soil. So if they can track down these boxes of dirt that Harker knows about, then maybe they have a chance to, to run them off and get them out of there. Um, they can transform into uh, various forms. They're, they've got the strength of like 20 dudes, but this one especially has 20 plus plus four Right. <laughs> because they pumped the blood of these these four people, these four men into uh, Lucy and Dracula drink it all. Was there anything that uh, is unusual in the story in terms of vampire lore? The one thing. Yeah. That, the, oh, go ahead, John. Oh, I was just going to say uh, the rose, the wild rose on the coffin. I had not heard that before. And then the fact that he has power over moths uh, that. That stuck out to me. I had never heard that about vampires before, and it makes me love that half of Lepidoptera all the more. But I can see it, right? I mean, they're associated with bats and creepy crawlies, and they used to eat people's clothes all the time. So, Yeah. What were you going to say, Luke? Uh, just that there's some inconsistencies with what the hell Van Helsing is reporting, according to the, the Klinger annotations. Like, There's instances where already at this point in the story like like vampire vampires aren't necessarily scared of the light right like we see we see dracula out in the daytime and so it just points at uh, a mythology that's being built i guess is the best way to put it like again if you're in 2021 thinking about vampires you've got all of these conceptions about what makes a vampire and shit like garlic and crucifixes and cutting their head off that all comes from this right mm-hmm. but but stoker was building it and he was building it haphazardly from uh culture and also a narrative that he was kind of putting together and van helsing's a not a not a reliable narrator <laughs> if we want to we want to take the clinger approach there there's a lot of uncertainty about what makes for making a vampire and what what makes for killing a vampire mm-hmm. uh yeah i guess that's it like 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 these are not th- this stuff is not solidified in stone yeah it's not canonized quite yet um no this is this is before canon right like this is this is people taking uh their own folklore and their own like head canon that they've got going on and sort of building their own notions of what is the story. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty punk rock in that regard. I really like this notion that Van Helsing thinks that daylight somehow harms vampires, but Harker has seen Dracula out in the day, right? Like that's, that's the man himself, but he is, he has grown young. From all that blood he'd been drinking. Yeah. Yeah. 20. Well, four, four strong dudes. And a woman. And possibly other people too, right? Like he's probably not just feeding on Lucy. Nah, it's probably that young Viral dude blood that he likes. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's right. Yeah. So where does where does that leave us for next time? The adventure is about to begin. They're about to cross the threshold, right? I mean, they they have agreed to embark upon a quest to destroy Dracula and all that he stands for, uh, to try and cleanse the earth of his evil of the vampire, and they've all bought in. Like Van Helsing has convinced them, seeing Lucy has convinced them. They're all pretty ticked off about that. Uh, they all loved her in their own way, and so uh, it stuff's about to get real, real, real. <laughs> yeah the now the quest begins and earlier john you said this is kind of a three-act structure but i swear it feels like four or five like okay harker in dracula's castle feels like a prologue i could see Th- that doesn't sure. that yeah. doesn't that feel like long ago yes. yeah i i would agree i think that's a i think that's a good a good way to frame it up like his whole like going to the old world is really kind of a prologue to the trap coming to the new world story, which is the the main meat and potatoes. Mm -hmm. So next time we're going to join Harker and Van Helsing and the rest of the crew and Mina to find Dracula's hideouts, get him out of London, send him back to Transylvania, track him down and try and end his reign of terror. Until we start fighting Dracula, where can the people find us, Josh? You can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at thecromcast. You can email us, and that's thecromcast at gmail.com, and we have a phone number you could call and tell us about your late-night Dracula thoughts or your daytime Dracula thoughts or your dusk, your, your crepuscular Dracula thoughts. That's 859-429-CROM. Hello, I think this book is a pack of lies. It paints Dracula in very bad light. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we'll see you a little bit further down the gothic road. Few creatures of the night have captured our imagination like vampires. What explains our enduring fascination with vampires? What is it about the vampire myth that explains our interest? Is it the overtones of sexual lust, power, and control? Or is it a fascination with the immortality of the undead? And what dark and hidden parts of our psyche are aroused and captivated by the legends of the undead, by the legends of the undead, by the legends of the undead. The mystery of the undead will continue to fascinate the living. The mystery of the undead will continue to will continue to fascinate the, the living.
creatures of the night have captured our imagination like vampires. What explains our enduring fascination with vampires? <laughs>